as a full-time Uber and Lyft driver, at this point I've given over 32,000 rides to college students in and around Florida State University, Florida A&M, Tallahassee Community College, often several students per trip, well over 50,000 students over the past eight years at this point. And now, with the COVID fears fading away, many curious students have been asking me about my way cool top hats again. To my amazement, a good 5, maybe even 10% of the conversations have led to questions about what pimology is. As a regular follower of my blogcast, you know it's the philosophy of awesomeness. So, when I explain that awesomeology is the philosophy of awesomeness, and that maximized awesomeness is that than which there could be nothing greater, very often I find myself in a conversation about whether or not there's any such thing as good or evil, right or wrong, and so on. How can anyone objectively say that one thing is better than another? Teachers. Are you aware that over half of your students don't believe there's any such thing as right or wrong? Did you teach them that? Today, we're going to discuss what objective criteria there might be for determining with certainty what is right and wrong. Ready? You've discovered the Pamology Society podcast. Join us on our journey as we explore the maximization of awesomeness, one ray of light at a time. And now, the host of today's episode, the Pamology Society's founder, James Carvin. In our last blogcast, I was telling you about Aristotle's virtue ethics. Remember? So, if it were true that there's no such thing as right or wrong, then any talk about a golden mean of virtue where a person can be too truthful may be a subject that's fallen on deaf ears. Thirty-three years ago, I attended something called an engagement encounter with my present and only wife ever, Lisa. At the three-day conference, there was a poster on the wall that read, Truth Without Kindness is cruelty. Now, as a happily married husband, I can tell you with certainty that there's a lot of wisdom in that. Probably the key to a lasting marriage has been the ability to forgive and let things go. Reminding people of their faults is being too truthful. I don't want to repeatedly hear about mine. She doesn't want to hear about hers. Easing up on heavy guilt trips helps people get along, especially married couples. We might want to start a conversation about whether there's such a thing as right or wrong, good or bad, or that dreaded word evil, with the question of why it might matter. Is the idea to guilt and shame us? Or maybe the point of singling out what's right or wrong is to shape public policy, or to determine whether someone's worthy for some sort of a job. Who are we hiring? Who are we voting for? We might look on their social media to see if their friends say they're liars, thieves, narcissists. <laughs> That's a common one. Or sexual deviants. And who's to say what's deviant sexually anyway? Judging others for their sexual preferences is a big no-no these days. But isn't that judgment itself also a judgment? Where does judgment come from? What's it for? 
seeing that different cultures and different religious institutions held varying opinions, especially when considering the opinions of atheists after the Enlightenment period began, Immanuel Kant thought that he could provide the world with a moral system based on pure reason rather than tradition. He hoped to find something that everyone could finally agree on. And as a fellow rationalist, I find myself in strong agreement that such an undertaking would be well worth looking into. I'd love to uncover a system of morality that would be impossible to question. But there are some dirty little secrets here. For one thing, almost nobody actually ever reads Immanuel Kant. They rely on Schopenhauer to interpret him. You've really got to have a lot of free time to get through his stuff. Even intellectuals have that problem. So what most of us do is we find the cliff notes somewhere, or maybe go to those crash course philosophy YouTube blurbs with Hank Green, right? Or if we want to go slightly deeper and learn about the difference between something like hypothetical and categorical imperatives and what sets Kant apart from Hume, Locke, or Aquinas, then we've got the internet. Fortunately, secondhand info should suffice to convey some basic concepts in a blogcast like this, where one or two takeaways is all anyone should expect in the first place. So for now, we can follow Green's path and focus on two main ideas. It's actually very simple. First, you shouldn't use people. You should respect them. This rule is sort of like Jesus' golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Remember that? Only it addresses a problem. Suppose what you want is something others wouldn't want. For instance, what if you were a masochist? Would you beat people up just because you wanted to be beaten up? Well, instead, Kant would say that you should respect their unique individuality and only beat them up if they asked you to. Not that he said that. He didn't. I'm making that up. But my point is that Kant's rule is about disregarding what other people want. You don't use them to get what you want without their consent. You respect others first and foremost. Now, next, we have Kant's rule of universalizability. That's a fancy word for saying that if everybody did it, then how would the world look? If the answer is that the world would suck that way, then the thing you might want to do would be wrong to do. It's a very simple sort of rule. So, for example, stealing is wrong because if everyone thought that stealing was okay, then nobody would have any sense of security about what they possessed, knowing that everyone was a thief. And the whole world would just suck that way. Same for lying. If everyone was a liar, then there would be no basis for assuming people ever told the truth. All communication would break down. All trust would disappear. The world would suck that way. Therefore, we shouldn't lie and we shouldn't steal. It's based on pure reason. It's an imperative, in fact. It's our duty. It's everyone's duty. No religion is required to know this with certainty. Now, obviously, doing your duty will make you a good citizen. But there's still a question of what moral good is. Now, the Scotch philosopher, David Hume, found following your personal passions to be a moral good. In pomology speak, you should maximize your awesomeness. Be all you can be. Consider your desires and talents. Pursuing your passions is actually a moral imperative. You should do it. 
But if you take this to an extreme, Hume, when misunderstood, might even lead you to an if-it-feels-good-do-it philosophy. We might want to curb that with an Aristotelian golden mean. What Hume actually means, for example, would be that if you feel sorry for that guy that's all beat up and left on the side of the road by robbers to die, you should go help them. For Hume, your compassion is a moral virtue. But not so for Kant. For Kant, if you actually don't give a hoot about that guy, but you help him despite your lack of feeling, doing it out of duty because you had understood this rationale, then what you did is a truly moral action. Now, I do think we need to give Kant some slack here. He wasn't saying there was anything wrong with doing things you like or that you are naturally inclined to do, like loving and caring for other people. He was simply pointing out the difference between categorical imperatives, things that can objectively be considered your duty, and other sorts of things that are entirely optional and certainly worthy of pursuit. And it's not like we're all in some virtue contest for moral superiority here. What's the point? So to put all this very simply, Kant was just being clear about the fact that there is a category of things that are objectively right to do. They're duties. They're worth building laws around. No churches, popes, synagogues, mosques, sacred texts, prophets or any other ancient and traditional authorities required for deducing this fact. Those are all the conscient rules we really need for right now, and that should be simple enough, don't you think? We'll add these little maxims to the balanced ecosystem of theories that we're going to keep building on as we close out Season 1 of this broadcast. For now, let's go back into my Uber for a minute. We were talking about awesomeness, and my students said they didn't believe there was any such thing as right or wrong. They said it was up to each individual person to decide what they believe. Well, I don't disagree with them on this last point. Who could expect anyone to act on something they didn't believe? But I don't believe that they truly believe there's no right or wrong. One way I might respond is to ask them if it would be wrong if someone came into the car with a gun, shot us both in the head, and stole their wallet. Not too many on hearing that question would continue to insist that there's no objective way to determine what's right or wrong. Most would consider this morally wrong. Some things are difficult to determine, and other things are not. I can think of a long list of things almost every student would agree was definitely wrong. What about racism? Is that wrong? Most of the examples border on bad taste even to talk about, so I'm not going to. But why is anything wrong? Is it a mere human construct to call murder and theft or racism wrong? For Kant, if everyone shot everyone else in the head and stole stuff, the world would suck. I don't think many would disagree with that. When we apply the principle of what goes around comes around, I think we can all agree that Kant may have something here. No religion needs to tell us that it's wrong. A simple, objective, moral principle can be applied, and it's not really all that hard to understand. It certainly works for creating civil societies, at least. Now, Kant's maxim is also very useful for pointing to the maximization of awesomeness, a world that either sucks or doesn't. You might want to call this a utilitarian argument, but Kant's system is not utilitarian because it has that 
ends not justifying the means thing worked in. In utilitarianism, the end product of maximized awesomeness is what counts. Whatever benefits the most living creatures, the most ways, that's what we should do. If some toes have to be stepped on to get there, well, so be it. Kant didn't like that. He was aiming for personal ethics, where we could determine whether individual acts were right or wrong. If in order to maximize awesomeness for the whole world, a few people had to be killed, that would be morally wrong for Kant. Even though the whole world would benefit, except for those few who stood in the way, Kant would say, no, don't do that. And yet, he did care about the benefit of the whole as well. That's what was at the heart of his universalizability maxim. Now, if this leaves you a little bit confused, then good, I've done my job. You can see here that two sets of sometimes conflicting values both matter. The good of the whole and the good of the individual. And you can see that sometimes it's in the interest of the many to sacrifice the interest of the few. But how do we deal with those pesky little means standing in our way? Would you side with the utilitarians? Now, the way that I see it, if we're dissatisfied with the solution, then we're challenged to think of something better. There's something not quite right about hurting people to get what we want, even when what we want is for the greater net good. I've always found that if we look for answers long enough and hard enough, we're going to find them. There's a certain seek and ye shall find thing that goes on here. It's what the sprocket of ingenuity placed on the top hat of excellence and creativity is all about. It might be something as simple as asking the few if they could please step aside. I've known some people who might even give their lives for the sake of the whole if they understood why they might be duty-bound to do so. Our men and women in battle, for instance, Others might assert certain perceived rights. An example that sticks out for me is Ruth Johnson and the cat lady Trini Fahey. Now, let me tell you a story. In the 1980s, I was a letter carrier in downtown West Palm Beach. All the houses for blocks and blocks had been torn down and were ready for development. But Mrs. Johnson's house and the cat lady's house were the only two ones left standing in the way of progress. And I always got to talk to Trini Faye because she was one of the only customers I had left. So she swore up and down to me that the developer, who I also knew, had poked Mrs. Johnson's cat's eyes out as an intimidating threat. Trini herself solemnly declared to me personally, over my dead body will I ever leave. She and her 50 cats had a right to stay there. She knew her rights, especially after a battle she'd had for the lives of 47 previously confiscated cats which had taken place. The Palm Beach Post portrayed her as insane and a drinker. The battle was real and had many dimensions, but Trini's heart was with the cats that she paid to spay, to neuter, and to protect. And in her mind, her property was the place where they felt safe. It was their territory. They had a right to be there, just as she did. She even held the deed. But within a week of swearing that oath before me, the almost 80-year-old Trini Fahey claimed that one of their men raped her. She was gone a week later, her house and her cats too, and that's all I know about it. I never knew what to make of her allegations. Deep down, I can tell you that I really believe she was thinking about 
those cats and not about the betterment of the town as a whole. But there was also about $5 million that she was demanding for the property. So everybody seems to have their price. The crack houses in the neighborhood had all been cleared to her benefit as crime had dropped dramatically. She had wanted to buy land in Loxahatchee, she told me, to invite artists and musicians, a ranch. Now, given the deafening buzz of flies and the stomach-turning stench from the rampant waste of all these cats, I had to disagree with her about that being an ideal place for artists. But that doesn't mean someone just as good-hearted couldn't have come along to donate the land that she needed for those cats and help her with her no-kill animal shelter mission, which was really very good-hearted. For all I know, maybe that's exactly what happened. From my point of view, she just disappeared. How it's the letter carrier. And before long, West Palm Beach was just one of the most beautiful cities in the world. No one was complaining about that. How is this really handled? We may never know. But I don't think it's impossible to imagine some ways that it could have happened that are much nicer than others. And that's my point. The few don't have to be disregarded for the benefit of the many. We can agree that it would be better if everyone somehow won, not just the majority, and not just a net win. I should say something about consequentialism here as well since I mentioned utilitarianism. In consequentialism, we're interested not just in the net total outcome, we're looking really at the direct results of the action itself. So, for both consequentialists and utilitarians, the ends can justify the means. The utilitarian wants a net positive total outcome, while the consequentialist is thinking of a more specific desired consequence rather than net total effect. Make sense? A consequentialist may justify stealing because stealing means gaining stuff that's desired, but object to stealing for the mere reason that it's likely they might get caught. They're less interested in the net effect than in the immediate consequence. The total outcome may be good if the one they steal from never knows the item's missing, but even if they do find out if the person stealing needs the object more and can get away with it, then the consequentialist would feel justified. So that's just a little tidbit of information because you probably hear about it. So that sort of thinking, whether consequentialist or utilitarian, would not work for Immanuel Kant, who would be asking us to look at the maximum of universalizability. If everyone stole using that rationale, then no one would pay for anything. Commerce would have no basis, and we would all starve, and that would suck. So it doesn't matter what the rationale is, don't steal. And Kant probably never used the word suck. Okay, stealing. So stealing is wrong. But what really is stealing? Doesn't it assume something about property rights? Where do property rights come from? Maybe we should ask mountain lions. They'll tell you that it comes from winning fights with other mountain lions. Los Angeles County respects the rights of mountain lions to their territory so much that they risk the lives of children, pets, and livestock hoping to prevent the extinction of the puma. Each cat needs about, get this, 200 square miles to call their own. And they're predators, protected predators, 
Now think about that. One, named P-22, since it's the 22nd tracked mountain lion, is confined to a much smaller space than average for their kind. Griffith Park. Oh, the poor puma. Parents, you may want to watch your children very carefully should you visit Griffith Park. And please note that according to California Penal Code, Section 26350 PC, it's illegal to openly carry a handgun that's exposed even if it's unloaded on one's person. Protection of animal species has been something of a losing battle in the Anthropozoic Age, but at least somebody's doing something somewhere. I sort of like asking animals about property rights. Humans are an animal species, special though we may be, and animals give us some answers about where the sense of property rights first comes from. My dog loves rolling in the grass and peeing wherever she thinks she can mark her territory. She's a terrier. Instincts matter. It's built in. Property for trade, on the other hand, that requires some mental acrobatics. Whether you accept a 6,000-year-old Earth or a 4.5-billion-year-old Earth you'll likely agree that the fossil record indicates that a transformation took place between a stone age and an agricultural age among humans not long ago. Human tribes were hunter-gatherers, wanderers, protecting their clans. Then they settled down and raised farm animals, and it was only when they did that that anything like modern property rights started to kick in. Prior to that, each clan shared what they could using the resources that they could find. They had resource-based economies. And when one clan ran into another, violence was typical if one side refused to share with the other. They had a shared expectation that anything that one tribe had collected could just as easily be recollected by the other. That's referred to as a forced sharing economy. If one tribe was roasting a pig, another was likely to smell it and invite themselves over. Not sharing would be met, quite possibly, with violence. That's how animals do it. That's how people used to do it. So there's very little reason to think people did it any other way. And I'm not going to sugarcoat this by looking at competing tribes as one humanity, one human family, as in a Zulu tribe Ubuntu, which I deeply respect and admire. I think it's anachronistic to do that. Violence was avoided through sharing. The point I want to make is that trading was a concept that developed only after farming started. Now, as I noted a few episodes back when we were talking about the treatment of women as property, capitalism was the beginning of patriarchal societies and women came to be treated as their animals. Here, I'll only add that in the hunter-gatherer stage, clans would assert their right to fight other clans only if resources weren't being shared. Because of this, the sense of what was right included a mutual expectation that the clans would share with one another, whether sex, food, or any other resources. Then, when people started settling on farms, one crop per plot of land at a time was typical but people still had the need to gather a variety of things. So instead of risking their lives with violence, they started to trade. I'll give you my wheat if you give me your apples, and so on. 
So that was a natural process. It didn't start out with cash. There was no monetary system at first. It was barter. Now, rulers of armies started to develop and competing forces that would often loot and burn cities and villages to amass their fortunes and build their kingdoms and empires as populations started to grow. But looting was unsustainable by itself, so rulers of empires quickly learned that conquest required cooperation and that cooperation required contentment. The armies themselves and their families needed property of their own if they were to be content and continue to fight. Property rights sort of naturally evolved. Laws were eventually drawn up to protect property rights, and that's what we find in a lot of our early documents, such as the Bible. Alongside this longer history, sort of a later development, you might want to consider the philosophy of Thomas Paine on property rights. Paine took less of a historical view than a reductionist one, really. His theory was that one acquired the right to property by supplying something of his own to it, his labor. So, for example, an apple. You work to pick the apple. The apple that's picked then becomes yours because you added your work to it. Otherwise, it's common property for all. So, the theory is that everything that's owned by anyone can be traced back to some manner of work that was done to have earned rights to it. Now, the fact that a lot of things are stolen and no such tracing is practical doesn't really undo Paine's theory making property ownership something that's legitimate. If someone had added their labor to a natural resource, it was somehow uniquely their own. It's an easy concept, and if they chose to trade that thing for something legitimately owned by someone else, the consent would allow plenty of variety of things owned by a lot of people. And that's the birth of modern capitalism, and why Paine thought it was legitimate. So that theory was then streamlined by the economic theories of Adam Smith, who ushered in the Industrial Age with the notion that workers who repeat tasks continually are better and faster at what they do than those who have to learn new tasks. Smith was right, but there is a problem. Workers hated their jobs. They were employees for the most part in the industrial age, not farm owners. They didn't own their own businesses. There was a class that did, but those who didn't really hated their jobs. And Marx pointed out the workers were alienated from their work if they didn't own it. I think he was right. They were giving all their time away for money, and they were in competition with each other, too, so they were alienated from one another, prone to hate their co-workers and their jobs, especially when their co-workers worked faster than they did or for a lower wage. It was an environment that always meant working harder for less money. And while Smith might have pointed to productivity as a way to maximize awesomeness, Marx's view of awesomeness involved the means to that end. And Kant would have had to have agreed with Marx on that. The ends didn't justify the means. The misery of workers was the means. Industrial capitalism is therefore inherently unethical in that sense. But what's the alternative if we reject capitalism and choose communism, as Marx did in his Communist Manifesto, then what's the result? It'll depend on who you ask, 
There are many socialist apologists to be found who turn a blind eye to historical tragedies and marked failures. They look only to the hypocrisy and failure of America and the European colonial powers to provide adequate health care and education equally for all. They laud the benefits of socialist experiments. So there we are in my Uber. My student tells me there's no such thing as right or wrong. I ask whether it would be a good thing to get medical help if they were in need. It's not a hard question, and they most certainly know the answer is yes. How shall we pay for it? That's another question. One will answer as we begin to discuss Pamelonomies next time. I've been saving the best for last. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the Pamology Society podcast. Transcripts of our podcast may be found at our website at pamology.com. We love it when you share them. Want to dig deeper? Complete our Pamology 101 course. It's free to subscribers, and you just may earn a top hat. It would be good. It's true. It would be good. It's true. I've got good news for 